0: Wonderful. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks, Ellie, for that wonderful reading. Brilliant, as always, and uh, great to be with you again this morning, Church. Uh, My name is Joel. For those who might not know me, uh, it's my privilege to be able to share God's Word with us this morning. And uh, we are looking at Exodus 34, this sort of uh, momentous occasion in sort of the book of Exodus, and really these words that we read, how the Lord is... Compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. These words become a, a refrain throughout the Old Testament. There's something that the Israelites continually remember and they sing them, they pray them, and uh, they become words that sort of uh, really represent who God is. And so we're taking a few weeks to look at them. Uh, Andrew last week took us through compassionate. And this morning we're looking at God is gracious. And I want you to think about that word grace for a moment. Uh, It's a really common word around churches. Um, But how would you you define it? Have Have a think about it for a moment. How would you define grace? Maybe you can turn to the person next to you and share your quick definition. Put something in the comments if you like. But how would you define grace? And really, this morning, all we're going to be doing is just sort of tracing that word and that theme throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, to see what the Bible says about grace. And I want to encourage you this morning that, um, even though it's something that a lot of us have probably heard this morning, that it is so important for us to remember, to remind ourselves, and to be refreshed on God's grace. So one of the first things that you realise when you study the word grace is that it is linked to beauty. Uh, in the in the in the book of Proverbs we read this: "She will place a head, she will place on your head a graceful garland, and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown." So there's this link, there's this parallel: graceful garland, beautiful crown, and we see it at other points as well. But there's this link between this word grace and beauty. And even today in English we have this, we, we talk about things that are beautiful and we might say that they are graceful. Uh, they, things that are awe-inspiring or elegant or they're sort of easy on the eyes, we would say that they are graceful. And even in the sports world we do this. I don't know, if it's, it's a bit of a weird thing, but we, we, we refer to certain athletes as, as graceful. There's an ease to what they do and um, probably the Best example, uh, well, I'll let you have a watch for a moment. That is insane tennis!
1: Karachi did not have an angle and he made one up. Zucker has a good point there. That's well, that's ridiculous. That doesn't <laughs> exist. That shot does
0: not exist. He went inside out. Probably spitting away.
1: Roger's fired up.
0: So if you don't know, that's Roger Federer Uh, and there was actually this, that title of that video on YouTube is Grace and this is how a writer in the Washington Post summarized it. He says this, the interplay of his movement and our emotions affect us on a level of pure feeling. Science and grunt work create the kind of casual looking flick, a combination of Federer's uniquely wired brain and years of conditioning. But it seems like a miracle. Not only amazing, but effortless. That's the grace of Federer. He hardly breaks a sweat, and we are left with our air in our lungs. And so, in that video, you see Roger Federer, you see this sort of grace, this ease about what he does. Um, but it's not just his ability and his skill, but it's also his character. For those who Sort of seem and, and heard his interviews and the way that he celebrates and he doesn't grunt and moan and complain. He sort of just goes about it in a graceful way. And compare that in that video to the guy you see at the end, Nick Kyrgios. He's got all the trick shots, but we'd never say that he is graceful. There's something different. There's a different response within us, particularly if you know anything about the sport and about the people. There's a different response. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this morning because that, I think, helps us understand this idea of grace, is this response, this favourable response that we have to something particularly that is beautiful. Now, one of the hard things when you look at the word grace is that when you type it into your English Bibles, you only see it in the Old Testament about 10 times. 10 times the word grace appears in English. Um, gracious appears a little bit more. But when you look at the Hebrew word, which is chen, really rolls off the back of the throat lovely, chen, if you look at that word, it's translated often as favour. And when you search that word, it, t- it turns up time and time again in the Old Testament. And this is where it all sort of begins to tie together beauty, grace, favour. We see something beautiful. We call it graceful because it causes this favourable response. We we enjoy we delight in what we see. And so the earliest biblical example that we get is that of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. We see that God has had enough of humanity. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart God has had enough but you skip ahead to verse 8 and it says this but Noah found favor Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord Noah found grace and favor why well we read in the next verse it says Noah was a righteous man he was blameless in his generation Noah walked with God. So Noah is blameless, he's righteous, therefore he finds favor in the eyes of God and he is then saved from his corrupt, sinful generation. Another example that we see in the Old Testament is that of Esther. We read this in Esther chapter 2. It says Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at and if you know the story then we get sort of the ancient Persian version of the bachelor and Esther wins this competition pretty much as the king is looking for a new wife and it says this when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace the king loved Esther more than all the, all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her a queen instead of Vashti. So Esther, the beautiful young woman, she finds grace and favor in the eyes of the king. And interestingly enough, with the word grace there is that Hebrew word chen, and uh, the English word favor that we get is actually hesed, which is covenant love, which is what we're looking at in a couple of weeks. And it's interesting to see them tied together here. But Just know this for this morning, that Esther, beautiful, she finds favor in the eyes of the king. And if you know the story, it goes on further where Esther finds out about this plot that all the Jews are going to be killed. All her people that are exiled in Persia are going to die. And so she makes this decision to approach the king. And approaching the king when not called upon meant possible death. If the king didn't want to hear from you, you would die on the spot. And so Esther courageously steps in. She goes into the king's court and it says this. She won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. She doesn't die. She instead is allowed to bring her request. And you know the story. All the people are saved. But once again, it's this same word, hen, grace. Favor, She finds favour in the eyes of the king because she's beautiful. And then this, she's allowed to bring her request. One last example that we have here in our reading uh, is that of Moses. You know, Andrew gave us the context last week where you know, Moses had been up on this mountain. He's getting the commandments and the covenant chiseled into stone tablets. And on his way down, he hears this Noise, he hears this party and he realizes the horrific scene of the people of Israel worshipping a golden calf. And his response is furious, there's punishment from God, people die, and the stone tablets are destroyed, and God is ready to start again like he did with Noah. But what we see in Exodus 33 is that Moses intercedes. And take note of the language that we see once again in this passage. Now, therefore, Moses says, If I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses replied, If your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Why? For you have found favour, you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Just in those short little verses, four times we get that same word, favour, grace. Moses has found favour in the eyes of God and so God will change his course of action. And instead of destroying the people, he recommits to his covenant and he forgives them. But it's through Moses' intercession that that takes place. And so it's important that we understand this because we often describe grace as unmerited favor, which is true. But what we've seen so far is that the Bible is talking about very merited favor here. We're talking about Roger Federer, who's humble and skillful, and we use the word grace. We talk about Noah, who's righteous, or Esther, who's beautiful, or Moses, who was the chosen appointed leader. And we say grace, they find favor in the eyes of God because, well they are they're worthy they're worthy of it and now we could stop here and that would be a very comfortable definition i think for our world every other religion would be on board because that makes sense to us that those who deserve favor get favor and if you are good enough and if you earn it therefore you get favor you get rewarded whatever language that worldview, that religion uses That idea makes sense. But of course, the Bible paints a much grander picture of grace. You see, even in all the examples that we talked about, there are other people who are saved through the work of that one biblical hero. You see, Esther finds grace, favour in the eyes of the king, and all the Jews are saved. Noah is the one who is blameless and righteous and yet all of his family are saved with him. Moses finds favour in the eyes of God and all the Israelites, the ones who had literally just been worshipping a golden calf, they still have that taste of powdered down gold in their mouth. They are forgiven because of the grace and favour of Moses. And this is the picture of the Bible all throughout that, you know, the Bible's really clear that we you me we are dead in our sins and our trespasses ephesians 2 verse 1 we are dead in our trespasses and sins dead with no hope of life we are more like nick curios than roger federer sorry to break that to you you know we're not esther we're the jewish people who have no idea that we have just been there's this plot behind the scenes to kill us we're not noah we're probably more like the people Drinking, eating, laughing at the guy on the crazy DIY project. We're not Moses. We're the Israelites who have just worshipped something created. We have turned from the creator to the created things. Just like Paul says in Romans 1. But praise our gracious God that someone fills those shoes. Someone steps into that place and his name is Jesus. Jesus. He is the righteous Noah that finds favor in the eyes of God. And he builds an ark so that his family can join him and escape the punishment and wrath of God. Jesus is the beautiful Esther who finds favor in the eyes of the king so that all of God's people are saved. Jesus is the Moses who intercedes for his people. He leads them out of Egypt. He offers them forgiveness and grace so that they can go all the way through to the promised land. This is the beauty of the Bible. It's not just filled with all these cute little kids' stories that we heard in Sunday school, but it's all pointing us to Jesus. We see this thread all the way through of heroes who find grace and favor and that extend that to people who are undeserving. Whether it's Moses, whether it's Noah, whether it's Esther, whether it's David who defeats Goliath and saves all of the scared army Whatever it may be, we see this thread all the way through and it leads us to Jesus. He is the ultimate expression of the gracious God that we serve. The one who finds perfect favor in the eyes of God and he extends that to all who would believe in him. It's totally undeserved and it is a total gift. This is what Paul writes in Romans 3. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That's not just people out there. That is you. That is me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know it's a verse I've heard so many times. But something I did this week is I I read it backwards. To sort of try and get the point of the verse. In Christ Jesus, there is redemption. And it is a gift of grace so that we are justified. We are made right with God, even though we fall short, even though we have sinned. It is in Christ Jesus that there is redemption. There is a gift of grace, of justification, that we can be made right with God. And that is the ultimate picture of grace. Because we don't deserve it. We have fallen short. We have sinned. No one is righteous, and yet God is gracious towards us. And Paul makes this clear through his letters that this is not something you earn. This is not your own doing. You don't earn God's favor, but you receive God's favor through Christ. This is the gift to be received. We've been the ones who have been worshipping golden calves, and yet we are given the gift of mercy, the gift of grace. A gift we don't deserve, a gift we are unworthy of, but a gift nevertheless. And I want to challenge you this morning. Have you opened that gift? Have you received that gift? Have you delighted in that gift? Do you know that you can be saved and set free by the grace and love of God? Because you see, in receiving this gracious gift, that same favor in the eyes of God that Noah found, that Esther found, that Moses found, we now live in that same reality. We are justified. We are made right. We are accounted righteous in God. We find favor in the eyes of God. He sees us as beautiful, as righteous, because of Jesus, And that changes absolutely everything about our lives. That God sees us with favour and with grace because of Jesus. This is how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that you're sinful and flawed? But do you also know that you are more loved and accepted through Jesus Christ? See, because this is a life changing message. No matter what you've done, there is grace. No matter what you will do, there is grace. You know, as we read in Exodus 34, God's grace heavily outweighs his wrath and his punishment. You know, we read, it says, He forgives and He maintains steadfast love for thousands, but by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father, fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, often we will leave off that last bit because third and fourth generation punishment, that sounds a bit harsh, but when you actually just read it all and take it in, okay, God will punish third and fourth but it also says god will forgive and maintain love for the thousands and i don't know about you but three and four versus thousand like that is heavily outweighed god's love and his grace his forgiveness far outweighs his punishment and that is good news for us because it means that we can we can bank on it we can be assured of it we can trust and know that when we approach god we're approaching a gracious God whose grace abounds. It far outweighs his wrath and punishment. Paul writes it like this in Romans 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. And that should be cause for us to say, hallelujah, amen, praise Jesus. There is more grace in him than sin in us. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Why? So that grace might reign, is what the verse said. Grace might be what is known. Grace might be what is remembered, what is proclaimed, what is experienced. What God is praised for is grace. You know, we don't sing the song, Amazing Wrath, how scary the sound that taught my soul to flee. No, we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Of course we don't neglect the wrath of God and we remember the coming judgment and we will talk about that in the weeks to come but we also must remember that God's grace far outweighs his wrath God's grace abounds to us and so this really is huge because we don't have to fear there is no more condemnation for those of us in Christ like Roy showed us in the kids' talk with the balloon, we don't actually have to fear because when we are in Christ or when Christ is in us, we don't need a fear popping over the flames of the fires of sin. His grace abounds. It is His predominant disposition towards us as sinners. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. His spirit is within us. His grace abounds so we can bank on that grace and forgiveness, we can know that we won't pop over those flames. That doesn't mean we can stay there, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But for now, just know that God's grace abounds. And I'm sure that for many of us, it's something we've heard before, but the reality is we cannot hear enough about God's grace. You know, there's this story in Luke chapter 8 where Jesus is in the house of the Pharisees and he's dining with them. And a sinful woman approaches. With tears and perfume, she she washes Jesus' feet. And the Pharisees are mortified because this sinful woman, well, by their law, by their definitions, she deserved punishment. Jesus should have explained to her the wrath that was coming and how God would punish because she's a sinner. And yet instead what happens, Jesus welcomes her in. He doesn't reject her and he instead tells this story and he explains the point of it. He says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And it's those last words that would have been pointed right at the Pharisees. He who is forgiven little, loves little. The people who knew all the doctrines, who knew all the laws and all the rules, did not know the grace. They did not know the forgiveness. And so there was little love with them towards Jesus. You see, grace is the great motivator, for grace is the gospel. It is the good news. And if we see people around us, or maybe if we see it in ourselves that there is little love for God, maybe that is a sign that we don't quite know the forgiveness and grace just as well as we might think we do. What if we don't need more wrath, but we actually need more grace? His kindness leads us to repentance. May his grace towards us not be in vain, like Paul says, In 1 Corinthians 15, may his grace towards us not be in vain. May we not forget it. May we not neglect it. His grace towards us is wonderful. It's boundless. It is amazing. And we need to see it time and time again. For he who is forgiven little loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves much. So as we wrap up, just three quick implications for us. Three practical things for us that naturally follow from God's grace. The first one is to humble yourself. James 4 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now that passage itself in the book of James is a bit hard to get your head around sometimes, but the simple message in these verses is that God gives more grace. His grace abounds. His grace isn't running out. But God does oppose the proud. The people who have it all together. The people who think, actually, I'm pretty good. I don't need any saving. I don't need a king. The Pharisees who think that they are righteous and they've got it all. There's no room for pride with the gospel. Because proud people don't receive gifts too well. But the Bible calls us to humble ourselves. To receive this gift of grace to recognize our need for a savior to recognize our brokenness our sin and to recognize that there is a gift of grace that comes from God that we can't earn cannot work to make it even we're just given a gift and from that place we resist the devil and we draw near to God and we're cleansed and purified like that verse says but it starts with humility and submitting to God, recognizing that we aren't the hero of the story. We're not Noah or Esther or Moses, but we do have someone who goes in our place and he asks us to submit, to humble ourselves. Know that God isn't looking for perfect people. He's found someone perfect and he's just willing, looking for people who will believe who will trust and who will walk with Him, who will bow their knee and submit to the King and choose to receive grace day after day. So the first thing is humble yourself. The second thing is to walk in new life. You see, the danger of a message like this is that we can just think, "Okay, sweet, God's gracious, God will forgive me. It doesn't matter what I do because God is gracious. But believe it or not, you're not the first person to maybe think like that, and guess what? The Bible does address it. It's what Paul says in Romans 6, just after that passage we read about grace abounding. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the second implication for us, that we would walk in new life. We don't keep going towards what we know is death, especially when God has shown us what is life. See, grace isn't just about forgiveness. Grace is about favor, favor to live a new life. We see that in the Apostle Paul who was literally going to kill Christians and yet God interrupts him and he says, you know, I'm unworthy to be an apostle. I'm the least, but by grace I am what I am. I am going to serve God. I'm going to work hard because he has shown me life. He's shown me favor. He's given me the ability now to live a new life. And just like Roy's picture of that balloon, I just think that's wonderful. But the thing is, balloons aren't meant to hover around those flames. We're meant to fly away from that. So know that if you slip off, of course, there is grace. But know that God has also, by his grace, given you his spirit that we may walk in new life. All throughout the New Testament, we see two things talked about as gifts, and that is grace and the Holy Spirit, and they go hand in hand. They are both undeserved, unearned, and we simply receive God's gifts of grace and the Holy Spirit so that we may live this new life. So continue to walk in it. Continue to flee from sin, resist the devil and draw near to God and walk in this newness of life. And the third implication for us, and the last one, is that we would live out grace. This for me is something I have often talked about. But I believe that the people of grace should be people of grace. That those who have received this favour from God that they did not deserve are then to extend that favour and that grace to those who may not even deserve it. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Jesus makes it very clear that everyone can love those who love them. But instead we are to reflect our Father in heaven and love those who are against us. Love those who are our enemies, who are different, who are difficult, who vote differently towards us, who would see things differently than us. We are to love our enemies, we are to love our neighbours. And Jesus even refers here to the sun and the rain that fall on the good and the evil. It's this reference to God's common grace. That he's not just gracious, towards; he's gracious towards everyone. The fact that sin and brokenness are not completely rampant in our world and that there is still good, that is the grace of God. And that is a whole other sermon and a whole other theological thing that you can read about if you like, common grace. But... God has showed us special grace. God has saved us by his grace. And as children of God, we are then to take that unmerited favor and extend that. We love those who are difficult to love. We love our enemies. The people of grace are people of grace. And so to finish, I want us to take a couple moments just to watch this short clip just goes for a couple of minutes and it's a, a recreation of one of the stories in Les Mis. I think it's a beautiful depiction of grace, of God's grace, but it's also a beautiful depiction of then how we are to live from that place. So take a moment, reflect on this, and just ask God, show me your grace here.
1: On a cold, bleak night long ago, a beggar wandered the streets, looking for a warm place to rest his head. His wandering seemed in vain, however, for there was no one who failed to recognize the notorious vagabond and thief, Jean Valjean. And so, weary and frozen to the bone, Valjean tried one last door, that of the town bishop and to his surprise the bishop welcomed him with open arms the kind bishop fed the pitiful valjean and then he bid him good night but valjean returning to old habits plundered the bishop's home of its silver and he stole off into the night but he didn't get far come the morning Valjean found himself once more in the bishop's home, this time escorted by the gendarme that had apprehended him. This man seems to have taken possession of all your valuables, Father, but he claims you gave them to him as a gift. The pitiful Valjean sunk deeper into his shame, but the bishop, in kindness and grace, looked upon Valjean and said, Yes, it's true, I gave him those trinkets. But Valjean, you left so quickly that you forgot the second part of your gift. Then the bishop took his most treasured of possessions, his silver candlesticks, and offered them to the thief. Valjean was taken aback by the man's mercy. My good men, unshackle him. You may be on your way. Once the gendarme had left, the bishop told the thief, Viz this silver, I have ransomed your soul for Christ. Go now, redeemed and restored, and live a life worthy of this gift. And in that moment, the thief was forever changed, for he had never known such grace.
0: So just like in that clip, we are the thief and we are shown great mercy by God. May our lives be forever changed. But also on another side, may we recognise that we are called to be like that priest, that we are to extend God's grace and mercy to all those that we come across, all of whom are unworthy, just like us. May we know God's grace this morning and may we live from that place.